Welcome to the Hotel Analyst podcast, your regular dose of 20 minutes or so of thoughts of matters of the moment uh, in and around the hotel investment space. Uh, my name is Chris Bowne, I'm the editor at Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined as usual by Andrew Sangster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. And we've got something big and juicy and exciting to talk about this week off the top because there is a potentially another big merger, takeover, consolidation deal in the hotel space. Um, so finally, uh, after months of secret talks that we all knew about, but neither of the parties would admit to, um, between talks that is between um, Wyndham and Choice Hotels, it appears the talks have uh, fallen apart, and that's led to Choice Hotels declaring a, uh, a, a an offer, a takeover offer for Wyndham. Uh, Wyndham management have immediately uh, declined it, said it's it's not 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 the best deal of the, it's the shareholders, um, and so now we're in open season for discussions and uh, further talks and uh, the opportunity for choice to smoke out who might be in favour of the deal and who might be against it. Uh, but it's uh, if it happens, then it will create a uh, a very another very large hotel group. Um, and once more uh, concentration of far many more hotel properties certainly in America um, if not uh, elsewhere in the world but a very large group in terms of absolute hotel numbers and so on so um, what happens next well we shall see Um, choice is keen to canvas all the parties uh, some some of those interested parties have come out against, some are for. Uh, Wyndham has uh, said its reason for breaking off the talks was something to do with concerns around um, uh, how Choice was going to pay for the deal and also uh, issues they were concerned about, pot- potential issues from US regulators who might say, well, these two, kind of, these two businesses combined have got too much concentration in certain markets and certain segments of the uh, of the hotel market particularly in the US. Of course what could also happen is there could be another suitor appear from the stage left or right that could be entertaining too. So Andrew what's your take on the first skirmish in this little? Um, I think it makes a lot of sense as a deal um, combining these two entities. Um, I understand why Wyndham is perhaps not super happy with uh, being the um, junior partner in this combination however and um, it does raise the question will it try and have a go at taking out choice Um, as one possible option of several which are out there. Um, A a combined choice and Wyndham um, creates a company which is more capable of going toe-to-toe in the US with um, I would argue the stronger players like Marriott, Hilton and IHG and what these these this trio has um, are better um, loyalty programs and um, I would also argue that they have more um, structured um, brands which are better able to deliver um, in terms of um, what franchisees want they 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 are more powerful on the whole um, that's not to dismiss what uh, Wyndham has and what Choice have but um, if you look at the Hilton the Marriott and the IHG uh, portfolio of brands by and large you find you know they have the the market leaders there in in you know each of the core segments they're playing in so whether it's Holiday Inn whether it's Courtyard whether it's Hampton or 
yeah, you know, this is where the, the strongest players are. Um, and there is a chance for for the combination here um, to sort of get back at that. Um, maybe, um, but it's that old joke, two drunks, you know, propping each other up <laughs> kind of thing. There is a risk of that. Now, that's very unfair, I think, both to Choice and in particular to, to Wyndham, who I think are very competent and able companies. But the reality is that they are they aren't quite as strong as those rivals. Um, so the question is, you know, does it make more sense for Wyndham to join with Choice or does it make more sense to go with, say, one of those big three um, that we've just talked about? And maybe it's that latter point, I suspect. Um, it's interesting, the two issues that uh, uh, you mentioned that Choice has raised one being the financing of the deal and i think that's quite a legitimate uh, issue 45 percent of the price the current price of just under 10 billion us um, that's being offered 45 percent of that's being met through uh, uh, shares of choice which the wyndham shareholders are going to end up holding and if this does i as i suspect it will end up with choice having to sweeten its offer quite considerably um the the reality is that the more expensive it gets for choice uh the less valuable what choice is offering at least half of what it's offering is going to be um from that perspective so i think there's a um a balance point there which has to be struck um which is going to be a challenge uh, it's interesting as a combo what it does um it still leaves um a company which is uh, number two rather than being the dominant player Marriott will still have more rooms. Um, interestingly, uh, Choice in its bid uh, documentation didn't mention the world's number two hotelier, Xinjiang, which owns the other bits of Radisson, um, which Choice doesn't own. So it's rather a surprising omission, I, th mm. um, I would suggest. But, uh, you know, a combined Choice and Wyndham does exceeds uh, Xinjiang's global room count um, it gets to about 1.44 million um, against the 1.24 million of Xinjiang Hilton's at 1.11 million and IHG 902,000 so you can clearly see where it, it moves into that position now I would be very surprised if there's major regulatory issues with this now i'm no competition lawyer but it it would strike me as a little bit absurd if we get to the if if um competition authorities start saying well look you know this mid-scale or upper mid-scale sector segment is going to be dominated um, by this new player I mean that's a bizarre read of the market mm. really they should be looking at the overall accommodation market and not narrowing it down to, to that extent I mean Morgan Stanley said that in the US the combined groups would have 37% of mid-scale and 23% of upper mid-scale now 37% is certainly over a, a threshold I think for requiring some level of intervention Prevention, uh, from regulators but again if it's just mid-scale that that really to me seems a bit odd that they they would feel the need to to get stuck in there so that that 
I would have thought is a bit of a red herring. Much more important is this issue of how it's being financed, the debt burden that Choice ends up with, and the fact that uh, Wyndham shareholders are going to end up with uh, a whole bunch of uh, Choice shares as well. Um, the brand portfolio, when you put the two together, um, also looks, uh, shall we say, an interesting combination. You're coming up with 46 brands. I think only Accor can rival that, and that's probably only by including some of their non-accommodation brands. Wyndham alone lists 24 brands ranging from um, Microtel in the economy space, Super 8 in the economy space, all the way up to luxury with its uh, registry collection hotels. Of course the bulk of it is in that that mid-market piece. Um, Choice has 13 under its, uh, shall we say, pre-Radisson guys. Um, and it added a further nine brands under Radisson. So it gives a, you know, this combined or potential combined entity um, with 46 brands. Um, the big underlying issue here, I think, that's going to come to the fore in this takeover battle is, as you said, Chris, is there going to be another suitor? Um, and is um, choice going to be able to convince the Wyndham shareholders that it's actually its own management team, i.e. the choice management team, that is the one best suited to be running the combined entity. Um, given some of the numbers, um, given some of the recent performances, you could take the opposite point of view, I would mm. suggest. Um, if you look at uh, um, the sort of EBITDA performance, um, that was, you know, EBITDA and turnover if you take away the Radisson acquisition that was largely standing still in the first half of this year EBITDA was up just one percent and there's literally no change in overall revenue in contrast Wyndham saw revenue up seven percent and adjusted EBITDA um, up nine percent so clearly there's uh, you know there's good case for the Wyndham management to say look you know, we're running what we've got a lot better. Um, it's us that should be in the box seat here following any takeover or any merger rather. Um, and again, the margin, EBITDA margin piece, 800 basis points ahead at Wyndham compared to Choice. Um, th this is going to be a, a, a tricky one to, to um, win over Wyndham shareholders, I would think. And indeed, Choice's own shareholders when they, when they take a look at this and what the combined entity is going to be and i'd also say to Wyndham, um to choice you know where should you be looking here for a consolidation maybe you ought to be having a further chat with jin Zhang and uh, getting the rest of radisson um it would make a lot more sense to have some coherence around the radisson brand now it's time to turn to our thoughts to another of the big beasts of the hotel landscape uh, and that is uh, accor invest and uh, talk about what's going on there so accor invest uh, just a quick uh, history lesson set up in 2017 by accor uh, when the company decided it wanted to uh, clarify its status and, and be asset light just like the other big uh, international hotel brand groups so accor invest was created as a vehicle into which Accor put all of its owned and leased uh, property commitments. Um, they were then parceled up uh, into a separate entity and Accor then uh, was able to persuade uh, several major uh, international investors to buy a stake in Accor Invest. 
delivering Accor back some some cash, but also helping to set Accor Invest uh, at arm's length from uh, the Accor operational vehicle. Um, uh, that all looked absolutely fine, I'm sure, for uh, for the investors and for Accor. But of course, then the pandemic torpedoed uh, the planned. Uh, returns in terms of rents and so on uh, coming through Accor Invest uh, that in turn has then upset the uh, the whole financial structure because obviously there was quite a lot of debt involved in um, in in covering uh, Accor Invest acquisitions and shareholdings and so uh, the company has has struggled to refinance and sort out its uh, funding there have been uh, sales along the way uh, Accor Invest today has 753 hotels i think it did go up as high as uh, 900 um, at one point when it uh, bought in uh, the east european orbis business um, and it's so it's, it has slimmed down a little bit and it does appear from reports uh, in the media that they are now looking to sell down another 2 billion euros of uh, hotel assets to help further with the uh, financing arrangements and deleveraging. So there are a number of hotels that have been whispered for being up for sale um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what demand there is for them. Uh, they w- uh, Bloomberg says there's going to be a package in the UK, there's some in Holland, Paris, Germany and Latin America. Um, Aqua Investors previously sold off bits uh, that were a kind of non-core peripheral to its main activities including uh, selling off uh, properties in Australia um, back in 2020. So meantime uh, what next what next for Acker Invest? Yeah and it also caused me to reflect what next in terms of that topic we just never seem to be able to get away from week on <laughs> uh, week in week out which is uh, when is deal flow going to get back again in earnest um and I think there are some clues with what's going on here at Accor Invest um with these problems in terms of its capital structure and the need to make disposals to 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 sort out that capital structure since the end of the covid restrictions and the start of the rate tightening cycle we've we've seen what was called the bid ask spread um, expanding sellers have been pointing to the incredibly robust top line performance and expecting ever higher um, prices as a result of that you know look at how well we're doing in terms of a you know in terms of sales other buyers have been pointing to uh, what's been happening to ever increasing debt costs and this ought in their eyes be driving values down so you've kind of got the two heading further and further apart as we go on with this so the sell line continuing to soar away and the 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 buy line um continuing to sort of turn down as the uh, you know in terms of what what is what prices um, buyers are willing to pay. Um, I think we're now at last at a point where both of those lines are levelling out. Uh, I think the, thanks to the economic slowdown and thanks to the fact that uh, um, you know we've largely got back to or, or, and beyond where we were pre the lockdown periods, um, but it, it means the top line isn't 
really growing anywhere near what it was and i think we're finally at the end of the rate tightening cycle i don't want to sort mm-hmm. of uh, <laughs> cast a nasty spell on this and then suddenly see all the central banks change their minds and start shooting rates up again but i suspect we are at that point now most people um you know there was a reuters uh a poll um out today i think uh, we're recording this on tuesday um which um are of economists and the majority of them say look central banks have ended their rate tightening cycle so we've at least got a sort of you know that gap that bid our spread um is not growing anymore um and it's really about finding ways of bridging the divide and i think you know what once there's you know, people are comfortable with where we are and I think they're still going to take a few quarters um, for this comfort to get back um, fully um, but once we're there buyers are going to be prepared to sort of you know take the plunge and sellers will realize actually yeah we've got to take a hit here and there'll be a little bit of repricing um, at both ends going up from a buyer's perspective and coming down from a from a seller's perspective and hopefully finally we'll we'll find a meeting in the middle so i, I think that's the good news um from the perspective of uh, uh what's going on in the market but probably well into 2024 before things get rolling properly again um going back to Accor invest well as you point out chris that you know the huge amount of debt they took on as a result of uh, uh, the lockdowns and the restricted trading environment has hit them hard and they've got to restructure and got to deal with that um for Accor brand company i think this is probably a mixed blessing the good news is that it you know it can start dealing with the overhang that its 30 percent share in Accor invest is leaving it with i mean it wants to be seen as an asset like company but it's very hard to be seen as that while it's still owning 30 percent of Accor invest well if it can finally crystallize that which um, a restructuring of Accor or invest will enable it to do then that's good news the bad news it's probably going to lose quite a few flags as Accor invests exit some of these investments um even for example last month uh, travel lodge took on a former ibis in northamptonshire that had been part of the accor invest portfolio i think we'll see quite a bit of that um as accor invests unwinds its position um and i think for accor invest itself i think the thing it needs to do to to show this is no longer a sort of an accor acolyte as it were um is a change its name but b to actually take on brands other than accor um if you look at what happened to sort of the us reits whether it's host marriott or park they really started to uh uh become independent companies in their own right as they took on the brands of other hotel companies in the case of host marriott it took on a whole bunch of starwoods um, and park is gradually in one season two seasons well just one season actually taking on the odd um, non-hilton property as well um, Accor invest has to make this move i'd suggest to to make it a you know it's not just an Accor ish company now we're going to turn to uh what's been going on at whitbread uh, and uh, whitbread of course purveyors of the premier inn brand um uh, if you're in the uk it's a very very massive 
budget hotel brand you can't really escape from from hearing about and uh, increasing that's becoming the case in in germany um so a very focused business uh just just operates in the one segment and just has a substantial presence in that segment and carries on doing ver doing its business very well um i use the word sure-footed to sum up this uh, latest update from the company um they're continuing to trade strongly uh they are now generating good amounts of cash paying dividend to shareholders they're um, growing fast in germany where they're now the fastest growing hotel chain in germany um and um picking up the pace there they've still got a long way to go before they're going to get anywhere near as big as they are in the uk but uh, seem to be uh treading a, a solid path there uh their performance continues to be strong and uh, what's what's interesting also is that the uh business in the uk uh the ceo is now very very uh, sure is going to do very well in the next few years because their their main opposition which they see as a kind of the unbranded um, uh, budget sector is is in for they're convinced a very hard time uh, with more of the kind of um, uh, marginal players and and smaller properties dropping out of the market and they think that's going to give them a good period where they're going to have very little uh, uh, opposition in terms of new supply elsewhere in the market meanwhile because they're such a big outfit because they've got a strong balance sheet they're busily buying up development sites uh, signing leases and even buying office blocks in the city of london to convert to to new premier in hotels so uh, all in all a pretty strong um, performance and looks like no clouds on the horizon yeah it's that supply point that really caught my eye looking at these numbers i i looked at its presentation uh for the 2019 well it calls it the full year 2020 because the Whitbread year ends in early March so that that is actually a very convenient point for looking at uh, sort of pre-lockdown and post-lockdown um, so that full year 2020 to early March um, you look at the UK hotel supply uh, actually I just looked at the, the October 2019 um, half year that was seven seven hundred and fifteen thousand rooms um it said that uh, the uk had at that point um it's now saying that even by 2027 uk hotel supply will still be below seven hundred thousand rooms and which actually gives the number of six hundred ninety six thousand but obviously that's a mm. long way out and it's hard to be that precise but it's quite astonishing the change there so back in that half year they had been planning for about 750,000 rooms over the, the coming years um, that, so it, what happened with the lockdowns has been a massive hit um, in particular as you say Chris to those independents branded supply is growing it's that independent supply which is rapidly disappearing from the market um, and that independent supply is going and going for good. Uh, Whitbread made a point of saying 70% um, of independent hotels that have left so far had already been converted to alternative use. So to sort of imply, well, look, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're not suddenly going to pop up again no. as uh, you know as as a hotel. Um, 
so it, it's quite clear we're, we're losing that you factor in also we've got about four percent of uk room stock currently used to house asylum seekers uh, it's been a very very benign supply environment right now and it's not surprising to see such astonishing performance by um, hoteliers um, revpar up 42 percent on where it was uh in the half year to um in in 2019 uh well that full that 2020 year um so it, it, it's quite a, a a remarkable increase um the big increase of course has been driven by room rates they are up 31 percent compared to where they were pre-covid um but occupancy too is stronger than where it was uh back in 2019 you know quite a uh, a robust six percentage point increase so it's it's both in that volume but particularly in price and the price thing's quite interesting um because the which uh survey which comes out every year they um survey four thousand or so people um to get an idea of what they think about hotel um, brands now whitbread came top of the survey as it usually does um but which said it's not going to give it a recommended provider accolade because of uh, quote hiked up <laughs> prices so the, the consumer survey reckoned that rates had gone up about 35 percent um so you can understand why consumers are feeling slightly aggrieved in terms of value but they still think it's the best brand out there um the quotes like quality is pretty much guaranteed so great news for whitbread in terms of its standards of operation um, but also great news for Whitbread shareholders that it's been able to push prices up <laughs> yes. so aggressively even if there is a little <laughs> bit of concern but given everybody else is doing it as well well you know what else you, are they, are they going to do um, the, the second part of this overall thing is is Germany um, and Whitbread is continuing to make progress in Germany the interesting bit is um, here is uh, that Whitbread has decided, well, we're going to go back to using an OTA. Mm. It's going to use Booking.com. It's exited that uh, for the UK. It doesn't use any OTAs in the UK. It, 10% of um, demand is... 10% of its uh, sales are, however, through travel management companies, which is interesting. It's part of the push it's having to get business travellers to use its properties, um, but no OTAs. But in Germany, what Whitbread is saying, it, it's got to use them to, uh, to because of its uh, the sort of brand recognition and to drive an extra bit of uh, business its way as it's, as it's growing its market presence and market share. I mean, it's looking at 16,000 rooms in Germany, uh, a little bit behind um, uh, Motel One on seventeen thousand, B and B on eighteen thousand, and Ibis, the market leader, on twenty-two thousand. But it's very confident it's going to get to be number one. Um, that's where it set its sights, and it's hired uh, the former head of Tui's Hotels and Resorts to get there. So I think that's looking in a very good place. I think from. Now it's time to turn to our five star no star awards this week and five stars Andrew you're awarding to the return of M&A right? 
yeah absolutely so you know we've just been talking about that we've been talking about uh, um, you know the problems and challenges I'm not suggesting that suddenly the dam is breaking or anything like that but clearly I think you know if nothing else it's going to highlight our sector as an opportunity these things always do that um, I remember the uh, Granada Forte takeover just how much excitement that got in the market and that was followed by a whole raft of uh, IPOs in the market as investors suddenly realized actually this is a sector we want some exposure to and uh, I suspect that from a global perspective this uh, choice bid for Wyndham is, is going to do that and uh, start getting an interest back in our sector again and uh, I don't think it'll be the last uh, hostile takeover we'll see in this and no site. stars uh, this week are going to a zombie hotels uh, in particular the one I stayed in last Friday night <laughs> in uh, in Sheffield it was a, a Mercure um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there because there are actually three Mercures in Sheffield so I'm going to spare any individual owner or operator operator uh, the blushes of, of actually naming them and the property but uh, frankly it was disappointing it was desperately needed refurbishment um, I paid for a privileged room from for me and my partner to enjoy and the privilege was we got sat sat next to the boiler which rumbled uh, all night uh, but anyway I won't go on but I, it's interesting to reference back I think Andrew to the um, uh, <laughs> to the to the, the witch magazine uh, um, survey which i think you said found mercure by and large in second from last place as a as a brand yeah yes um, of course britannia you can rely on britannia yeah. hotels yeah. prop it up at the bottom but uh yeah mercure has a shall we say a very mixed reputation which is a problem it's got a, a mixed portfolio it got us a, a tranche of bottom end uh mcdonald hotels um and that that can't be helping it and uh, i'm not sure whether the one you stayed at was an old mcdonald property but uh, um, they certainly um, were in need of uh, quite a bit of investment <laughs> following that disposal and i don't think they had a mm -hmm. huge amount spent on them um so i i yeah it it's uh, it, it's a problem and actually it, it 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 just think how much worse it is if you go out there into yeah. the independent sector <laughs> um there are some strong independents but unfortunately the consistency is just not there and there are some very and i can't help feeling as i'd have been better off in the nearby premier inn <laughs> so there you go there's the story all right so and on that salutary note we'll say uh, goodbye for now